Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. We want to discover what makes creative people tick. Join us as we explore what it means to be a writer, and more importantly, what it means to be a person. Remember why you love music, and welcome to Pitch List. Good afternoon. We haven't talked in a while. This is Chris Lindsay, and you're listening to Pitch List. Today, we've got a uh, very special episode. We're in between seasons, but I had something come up that I thought you guys would be interested in, so we're just going to throw a little uh, wild episode at you, not part of season three, just a little extra thing. Today, I am going to interview my wife, the lovely, talented, fantastic, beautiful songwriter and author, Amy Mayo. Say hi, Amy. Hey. Hey. (laughs) So um, Amy is right in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign for her book called Talking to the Sky. I was thinking, you know, I think a lot of people that listen to the podcast are songwriters. I think a lot of them are on the... uh, you know, beginning or uh, middle part of their songwriting career. And I bet a lot of you guys listening are curious about Kickstarter. I bet some of you even have your own Kickstarter and and or uh, Indiegogo. There's lots of platforms where people uh, get their projects up there and get their projects funded for recording their songs. And uh, I thought it'd be a really interesting episode for Amy to come in and talk about your book. And, you know, we could also talk about the fact that you're a badass songwriter, too, since this is a songwriting podcast. Um, but writing and songwriting is kind of the same thing. You're just writing. You know what I mean? Well, that's good. That, hey, that's one of my first questions. What What do you find the same about working on a uh, autobiography, a memoir like your book, and songwriting? What I find the same is that people just respond to the truth. So in a song or a book, I mean, now fiction's a whole different world, but I really wanted my book to read like fiction. So I spent a lot of, well, it took 13 years. So that's something that, <laughs> that part's insane. Yeah, we didn't get into yeah, that Yeah, that might have been, should be in the intro actually, because yeah. that's so messed up. Yeah, her book, Talking to the Sky, which is 13 years in the making. Let's start at the beginning. I think I know. But I'm your husband, so I'd love to hear what your. I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Um, Amy, what is this book about? This book is about going after your biggest dream, and especially for somebody who has this dream in their heart that they don't know how to make come true, um, that they, you know, that they they just feel like what is what they're supposed to be doing, and 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 everything seems like a detour to getting there and it's also to me a book about faith over fear and not giving up it it is the underdog story and i feel like that's what most people are looking for is some encouragement and inspiration and that's what my biggest prayer for this book is that that it'll help people, you know, like that if there's a young 17 year old in a small town that just wants to, you know, move to Nashville or move to L.A. or do whatever their dream is and and they just 
can't quit thinking about it and they they don't know how to do it to just take the leap just jump just go you know what i mean just make the decision and find a way and go and then then you'll figure it out i had no idea how this would work or i don't think any of us do no but so it's to me it's a story of the survival of a dream and faith over fear and not giving up and it's it's for people who feel like they're stuck in the wrong life and they they don't know what to do like for me I, growing up um i just i dreamed of being a songwriter from the time i was 8 and then when i turned i i just planned it for 10 years and then when i turned 18 i realized i was stuck in alabama I mean, I don't know what I was thinking was going to happen, if it was just going to be some kind of red carpet was going to roll out and take me, you know, to my dreams to Nashville. But um, so one major thing is when I was 19, I almost ended my life. I mean, before it had even began. And by God's grace, I'm still here. And somehow I got to Nashville after that. And then I wasn't in Nashville for six months, and I was married to that, you know, redneck wife-beaten, just, I don't don't even know how I got myself in such a messed-up situation so fast. And then, so there I was again, just trapped, you know, like, I didn't see any way out. I knew I would never be who I had always thought I would be with him because he just wanted to make me smaller and smaller and smaller until I felt like I didn't even know myself anymore. None of my friends, uh, they were all, I mean, everybody around me saw this happening, right? but they had no idea how bad it really was. Right. Well, and then on top of that, like there was something else I realized and that is I, I look back and I don't know what I was thinking like that, you know, that that I even thought I could be a songwriter because my dad, when I was about 13, told me I was tone deaf. So yeah. I didn't understand that, though, because I sang musicals at school and I loved to sing. And, and I didn't understand why, like, my teacher would give me solos if I was tone deaf. But but the thing is, if you're tone deaf, you don't know you're tone deaf. So I believed him. And then I stopped singing in front of anybody. And, and so, like, when I got to Nashville, like, when I finally got away from my, my, hus- my first husband, um, when I finally got away from him... <laughs> I was, I'd heard him tell me this and my dad told me this, even though my dad wanted to support me, I think he didn't want to encourage me too much because he kind of thought it was impossible a little bit. Like he, he didn't really see how it would work and looking at it, nobody would see how it'd work because I wanted to be a songwriter, but at the same time, I don't play an instrument and I don't, I didn't, I thought I was tone deaf. But just to play, okay. Your dad didn't play an instrument, yeah. didn't sing, and was a hit songwriter and would go demo songs by just tapping his knee and singing it, and they'd write a chart yeah, on another, the spot. Well, would, he didn't even know the yeah, chords to his songs. that's right, that's right. So he was doing that. I wonder why he was thinking you couldn't. I'll tell you one major reason he was thinking I couldn't, because there wasn't another girl that I even know of doing it. 
This was the early 90s. That's right. The, the only female songwriters were artists making records. They were writing songs for their records. Like Mary Chapin Carpenter was popular. And um, Matresa Berg was my hero. And she was writing songs, um, like she was writing songs that I was just in love with, but she was writing them for her record, and then other people were recording them. But so um, going to writing appointments for a while, I was afraid to sing in front of anybody, like terrified, because like I said, you don't know if you're tone deaf. If you're tone right. deaf, you don't know it. And um so, like, I remit, I started taking guitar lessons, and when, like, when I would get out my guitar in a writing appointment, whoever I was with would just go, oh, you know, like, oh, my God, <laughs> here she goes, because I could barely play the chords. Right. And um, gradually, I realized everybody, like, 90% of the time in the writing room, people need an idea they need an idea and they need lyrics and once I figured that out I just went right back to what my heart is words and you know what I mean I love mm -hmm. words and so um I got into like understanding this is what we always need you know like we right. always need a good title it's it's harder it's the harder part the the town is full of people who are very musically talented yeah I mean everyone that comes here it's we don't I mean, we've talked about this a million times, but I mean, how many times have we sat at this table to try to write a song and had a problem with the music like zero? <laughs> yeah, everybody's not, always we're, not, we're just sitting here for music. four hours pulling our hair out saying, is that the right chord or say, isn't it? I was analyzing it this. I mean, now maybe this is different for everybody, but I was analyzing like looking at 20 years of songwriting appointments. Um, I think that probably. The idea is the hardest. I mean, a good idea. Yep. Like, I, I don't know that I've had an idea as good as this song, but a good example is The House That Built Me. Right. You get that kind of idea in the room with people who are good writers. You know what I mean? Now, Tom Douglas and the people that wrote that one are phenomenal writers, but I think anybody could have a hit sure. with that idea. Well, you can't and get off track. Yeah. It, it's such I a mean, strong idea. You, you can't something. get out in the weeds on that one. And everybody grew up somewhere except me. <laughs> except, except me. Amy I grew up everywhere. But um yeah, so like to me I think a really great idea is is probably the hardest. Um and then lyrics we seems like we struggle so much on lyrics yeah and then maybe melody but i didn't realize until about 10 years ago how important melody is you know what i mean like right. when you hear a song with an incredible melody like girl crush that melody is mm -hmm. so different and so cool yep. you know like how it moves like i played a songwriter night with liz liz rose that wrote it and she was sitting next to me and i was really hearing it in a different way with her singing it and that melody's really interesting and cool yeah you know like yeah it, Hillary probably, I mean, Hillary. Uh, it sounds like a Hillary The melody. people that did it, I mean, Lori McKenna, Hillary Lindsay, and well, Liz. All badasses. Badasses. But there is something about that song. The melody isn't just a melody. It, it somehow lives in the words. It cradles the words. It's like, it's like made fused. together. They're like, I don't know that you could pull them apart. Sometimes yeah. you can hear words being 
laid into melodies that those are just vines grown together yeah and like yeah. they're they're together and you know most like giant songs are like that amazed yep. is like that yep. they belong together yeah and that's the melody and when you get something like with the with the melody and the singer and the word you know the whole right. shebang that's when you'll get a song that's like just in its own league yeah you know it's just yeah. its own little world i wonder if that's why because i always say um if you got a hit song the words don't have to be that good that's like a little joke i say but i think it's because if the words are interwoven into the melody like that yeah that you don't want to pull them out even if it's uh cliche you'll be but, like no that just sounds good right yeah. there you know when, in a normal song you'd be like that's horrible we say that a million times get that out one thing I love about what you just said, like one, there's a story I love about um, that song, Dirt on My Boots. Like they wrote that song before a writing appointment and it was like written quick. Yeah. And I've always thought that like some of the lines in it, like a little dirty dancing, midnight romancing, mm-hmm. a lot of people wouldn't have done those lines. They would have thought it to death and it wouldn't have been as good. You know what I mean? Yeah. They just went with the inspiration, and I love those lines in that song. Yeah, you because, know it's yes, fun to sing. It's fun to sing. That's a killer song. Well, that's what you you started that thing around here, the fifteen minute song. It's you amazing. Know. It's great because well, you, you turn your editor off. Explain that, that when we do that. Um. Well, okay. I'm gonna do a confession here. <laughs> this is messed up, but it's true. Um. My deal came up at Warner Chapel. And I had been working on this book so much that I only had like four and a half full copyrights. Well, in my songwriting deal, I'm supposed to have 10 full copyrights, um, you know, in a year. So that would be like 30 songs three way. And so I had four and a half. Well, I went into a panic and we came out here. I mean, we came out here and and like you played and I sang and we did like five songs in like two days, you know, just yeah. flying through them. But I went back and listened to these songs, and they're as good as anything we would have sat writing all day. I mean, those songs are good, you know what I mean? And I think it's because I wasn't like, I had to have them, period. I had to right. have them to turn in. Well, and we and didn't I, have this crazy pressure to make them, quote, good, unquote. And, you know? and it's crazy how good they came out. I yeah. mean, they really, like, I listen to them, and I'm just like, wow. They kind of, some of them have that quality, like dirt on my boots, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's uh, that's good advice. I think uh, we can definitely overthink this. Uh-huh. One other thing that I was going to, that I was going to talk about for a second um, is the title. So, I got the title for this book. I'd been writing this book for eight years before I knew what I was calling it, and, um, I, I had titled it happy, but that just wasn't right. I mean, I knew it wasn't right, but I had to call it something. And um, so one night I was walking around in our driveway and I was looking up at the moon and I was like, what am I going to call this book? Oh, my God, I can't. I don't know what to do. I've been writing this for so long and I don't even know the name of it. And um, so I just kept walking up and down the driveway and then I, I just looked up and I realized, talking to the sky, I've done that my whole life. That's the name of this book. 
And um, I realized that's where I've always gone. Like um, as a kid, I would lay out, you know, I would lay out in the yard on a towel, like eating cherries out of the jar, looking up, you know, at the blue sky. And then when I was, the night I tried to kill myself, I was 19 and drunk and out on a, you know, dead end dirt road, looking up at the sky, asking God, what do I do? And then when I ended up in that abusive nightmare marriage, I was in that little backyard, like I, after, um, like after he would hit me or beat me up or something, I would end up in the backyard, like, what do I do? You know, I don't know what to do. And so to me, the title is talking to the sky. It's like, it's like the one place you can go, you know, like it's, it's bigger than everything else. And to me, it's talking to God. And talking to the universe and talking like some sometimes it's like talking to angels. That's where I go if I need to talk to my dad, you know. So the title, I finally knew it was right. You know, when I just knew it was right, it felt right. And my songs have kind of been intertwined. I looked back and there's so many songs talking about like one of them is like, I talk to the sky and wonder if you hear me. I think, is that an address? Yeah, that's an address. Um, to the stars. That's one of my favorite songs we've yeah. ever written. And then it was in "Who You'd Be Today" by Kenny. Um, there's a line in there like, "Sometimes the sky's so blue, I feel like I can talk to you." So, so that road and "Champagne Hot," like that road, the songs were lining up with with my book. Well, and I remember the first time you told me that, I knew that was right. I knew it. You did. Yes. And then through the years, you would get nutty and say. That's not going to be the, I don't know if that's the title. And I'd be like, oh, that's the title. And you always came back. Yeah. I've got list of probably, oh my gosh, there's, I don't think there's anybody in the world with more list. Mm -hmm. And I always joke that, um, I don't think there's a book that ever took longer to write than mine, but the Bible. (laughs) But you know what? I'll tell you this. I know I'm your husband, but I mean it. If I had written something as good as what you have, I'd be okay with 13 years. It's really great. And it's, it's heartfelt. It's funny. It's real. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Well, let's backtrack. Talk about that. 13 years. What? I don't even remember. You know, I've been here for the whole 13. <laughs> okay. I don't, do you remember? I don't remember what started the book. Well, okay. I think, I think that it started... Well, one weird thing, okay, like the first chapter of the book is talking about when my dad shot himself when I was eight. And it's weird because I was thinking about that that night, like Christmas Eve, the way we found out was flat out insane. But um, my grandmother put me in a back room at their house because all hell was breaking loose. And she gave me one present. And so when I opened it, it was my first diary. Wow. In some ways, I think it started that night. But but really, I started the book after my dad survived. I started the book after my dad died because the way he died was so shocking. It was like 20 years later, but it was so shocking and hard to like digest and understand that and the Tennessean printed this story on the front page so everybody thought something different happened so I think that kind of started the book a little bit and then um 
and and at first I think this book was about my dad but um then it slowly these editors that I worked with told me this story is more about you you've probably got a different book about your dad but this is about going after your dream against all odds like that it this is like the underdog story okay so in your mind the book really started when you were a little girl and you got your first um diary and you started writing now i know i've written nonstop. right i know since i've been married to you for 20 years you uh, have kept a diary since you were you were young and i think maybe when you were younger even through your teenage years you probably wrote in that diary more than you do now yeah i think diary saved my life actually i think it's my ventilist vena what do you call it ventilation system it's how i get out like everything i'm holding in writing it down and you've taken you've had a lot of hit songs that were taken right out of your yeah diary. yeah a whole bunch it's yeah. funny because i think the human mind is is just so wild and nobody really understands how this is working because i'll go back in an old diary and i'll find pieces like of a song i did that with my best friend i saw like a paragraph of it that had started like as a poem like eight years before we wrote it that happens to me all the time wow yeah and you keep everything you write you have like literally rooms full of stacked up notebooks yeah and i think really probably the biggest thing about this taking 13 years and to me, it's proof anybody can do anything is that I came through and beat my OCD with writing stuff down because I probably have written this book 10,000 times and that's not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. And so I've got I've got there's a picture on the website. Um, I think it's on the Kickstarter website, too. There's a picture um, of all the shredded drafts and I've saved them because I'm going to use them as confetti at the book release party. Yeah, I've seen the bags. <laughs> so, so. I don't know what our kids think about. There's a whole room full of them. Well, they're, they're your kids. You're their mom. <laughs> they know you're crazy. And they love you. They love you for it. Because you're crazy, but you're crazy in all the right ways. Um, well, let's, let's circle back. So I agree with you now that you say it. The, the night, Danny, your father did pass away here in Nashville, which was one of the worst nights ever. Um, I think the book did start there for you. I don't think that you but, maybe but, started writing it exactly yeah. right after that, but I th- it wasn't long before it. But here's where I wanted to go okay, with that. Okay. Um, so let's introduce your dad. Okay. You know what I mean? Because the book, I think your book did start as sort of what they would call an homage to your father or wanting to get the stories about Danny down and, uh, so t- tell us about Danny Mayo. Um, Danny Mayo, like I've, n- I don't think Shakespeare and Mark Twain could come up with a character like Dan- like Danny Mayo. Actually, he, he kind of would be if they if Shakespeare yeah. and Mark Twain had a kid. And Hunter S. Thompson and was Hunter, in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I don't know. He was bipolar. He was. He would do things like, um, like as a kid, we were technically homeless. We thank God for my grandparents because we boomerang between their houses. And my parents, it was so crazy and chaotic that they were divorced for a whole year when I was five. And I never even knew it. 
I mean, I, I never even knew they were divorced because he, because we were we were all over the place like and, they weren't even together well okay and he was in and out a lot right he would no, go, he well, would leave for a couple weeks and then come back kind of kind of but really we were just living in different places like in gadsden but um one thing is one thing is i asked my mom like when i got a little older i was like why can i not remember hardly anything from my childhood like I remembered things, but I couldn't remember basic things like where we lived or where I went to school. And um, so I asked my mom, and then I asked my grandmother too. And my mom said, um, like, we live, I said, where, where did we live, you know? Like, and she said, we lived everywhere. And then I asked my grandmother, and she said, honey, you didn't really live anywhere. So <laughs> anywhere and everywhere were my answers. But my dad was just, he was bipolar, he was creative, and he was unpredictable. And it was, it was just the high of all highs being his daughter sometimes. But then he could be completely cruel. He could turn on a dime. And, like, he gave me a car, and then he came over and took it away, you know, that kind of thing. He would he would give me something and then take it, or he would say he was coming back, like, when he was out of town. And, and, and there's one story, like, there's just so oh, many with so, him. There are so many. I mean, the, one story that people, people like is the one when my mom was, like, I guess she was, like, right at nine months pregnant with me, and they went to the demolition derby. Um, she, my dad said he was going to get a Coke and she looked down and their only car, this Carmagia was down on the racetrack with a big white eight on the side of it. And then she just watched him demolish their only car. And then she had to climb in the window, the passenger side window pregnant. And then the next week when she went into labor with me, they didn't have a car. So she got a ride to the hospital with this boy that had just got his license that day that lived at the same trailer park. And, um, <laughs> and, and she, for some reason, when she went to the hospital to have me, she wore a wig. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I just found that out. Like she just told me that part. I'm thinking she wanted her hair to look good or I something. Guess, I guess, but she went by herself. She had just turned 20. And so um, it was kind of just crazy from the get go. Yeah, it, it was. And uh, if you get this book or if you go on Kickstarter uh, and, and, and order We've it. We've got one week. So we yeah. it's going to well, be we'll, like, yeah, yeah it's December 13th is like the day yeah and we'll get into that but i'm just that saying it stops it, if you get this book the danny stories alone i mean and there's there's dozens i think there's you know half a dozen just there's crazier stories than that oh yeah big time there's yeah. a story my favorite he and we won't tell the whole story i just set it up he had a good run he wrote keeper of the stars that was a big hit for um, tracy bird for tracy bird and were, feed jake feed jake anyway danny Gets his parents, uh, Amy, her brother, Corey, gets them all in a Southwest jet to Las Vegas to watch him gamble. He puts three. Well, he thought it was a vacation for us. That's what right, he thought. Right. He he has $375,000 in cash. Well, 330000 Okay. In cash, in a money belt. Yeah, in a fanny pack. In a fanny pack. Gets drunk on the plane and leaves it on the plane. 
Yeah, he. I, I didn't realize at the time he was really afraid to fly. And because he would drive to Florida and North Carolina. So, but I didn't know he was afraid to fly, but he just got trashed. Uh, he was kind of almost trashed when we got on the plane. But then um, he was just harassing the stewardess, like asking, you know, getting drink, like bring me two seven and sevens. And then we, we were with my grandparents and my grandmother was so against gambling. I mean, she was just miserable from the get-go. And then dad ended up, like, he, he was just being really loud. Like, if you can guess how much money's in this fanny pack, you know, I'll give you $10,000 to my brother. And he's just getting this money out in front of all these people, making everybody so nervous. And then by the time we, I, I'm surprised he didn't go to jail when we had to beg he was trying to get the captain of the plane or whatever they're called his hat i mean he was just acting like an idiot and i'm surprised he didn't go to jail but we talked him into letting you know letting us take him especially since my grandparents were with us and so i had left a book and i went back to get it and i looked and there that bag of money is just laying on the floor under the seat i mean he he just forgot it i i shoved it in my backpack and then i um didn't i didn't tell him that i'd got it and he he freaked out when we were (laughs) well they sent a limo because that's how much he gambled we had like two sweets and a limo from the golden nugget casino because they knew he was coming yeah i won't really tell anymore because okay but i love you you pulled a little money out of that fanny pack yeah i did i bought i bought a washer and a dryer so Back to the book. So you started wanting to sort of, I think, just sort of wanting to get Danny down on paper so that people yeah, would know. Yeah, so I wouldn't forget so him, So you too. wouldn't forget that yeah. our kids would know. And yeah. That, you know, he was a known that, guy. Yeah. And, you know, there's people on Music Row that love Danny. And, and you know, he's a part of country music history in his own way. And yeah. And to, sort of, um, to sort of, you know, journal all that, to get, get that all in one place. But here's where I'm going with this. At some point, it morphed into... That's part of it, but it's also your life story. Yeah, yeah, it turned into that because I didn't really, I mean, my life story has been, I don't know another memoir that's as crazy, like, I don't, I can't think of one, like, the day, I just remembered something a second ago, Um, the day that I started this memoir, I was in Dr. Head's office, and I had taken that book, um, the glass castle with me well i finished the book and um the second i finished that book i started my book because there's there something triggered something in me well one thing okay first of i'll say this first the glass castle's probably my favorite memoir that and um the year of magical thinking by john didion and i love david sedaris and running with scissors but um augustine burroughs but um, when, when I read The Glass Castle, there were stories in there and they, they were taken so like, like one story, people couldn't believe that Jeanette's dad threw her in the pool when she couldn't swim. Well, I mean, I would think on a lot of those stories, well, that ain't shit. I mean, my dad threw <laughs> me in a dirty river. You couldn't even see the bottom. You know what I mean? Like every story was escalated like 
that and that's why that's another reason probably i read that book and it, it inspired me and it made me realize you know i've got a crazy ass story here you do yeah and i think uh, i don't know when it happened for me but at some point in your journey of this book i realized and i'm asking if you think this is true but i realized that it started out with wanting to sort of uh talk about Danny and then it became about you and then I think it became therapy and then I think it was a way for you to come to terms with your whole life and everything that happened to you you know and you had you know especially when you were younger (laughs) you know what I just thought about you 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 had a a crazy life you know that that something's messed up you know in your life you know that something's messed up like if you make tony robbins cry (laughs) that's what i just thought he's a he's a tough nut to crack like he's not he doesn't even our therapist like it you know that you know something's going on but here's the thing like if you've had like a traumatic life then it's your life you don't really know other people don't live that way right and so i think part of Part of this has been, I think, fear of um, letting letting the book go, like, and hurting anybody in my family. Right. This is going to why it's taken so long. That's another reason. Yeah. Now, my, the OCD is probably the biggest reason. Right. But the fear of hurting anybody in my family is the by, other by reason. By telling these stories for well, everyone to read. Well, um, Yeah. I don't know. For me, an OCD, like, for me, like, after the beating stopped with my stepdad, um, I kind of got too old to whip a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so after the beating stopped, I started staying grounded. And once I started staying grounded, grounded at my house meant you're in your room. You can't go anywhere. You can't talk on the phone. Um being trapped in my room alone like that's like the worst punishment for criminals to be trapped alone right and solitary confinement yeah and so for me the ocd started in my bedroom and it was a self-soothing comforting thing to write that's why like anybody that knows me like anybody that's ever the doctor, the dentist, the hair people, like at a salon, I always drag my book in there. They wouldn't even know what to do if I didn't drag that right. book in there because they right. always laugh about it. You're, it's not just your book. It's it's multiple spiral notebooks, uh, these big honking notebooks, bags full of pens, reference books. It's a lot of stuff. So let's go from here. So you were a teenager that was grounded and you felt like you really weren't living your life. Your outlet was to listen to music and write, and you you wrote poetry and lyrics. I felt like my life was, like, happening without me, and I started planning my life when I was, like, about probably 12. I planned my life in diaries. I wrote it out, like, what I wanted to do and how I would do it and all this stuff, and then when um, there was a couple things that happened in high school one of them is another thing i am really worried about my family reading about i accidentally burned her house down and nobody knows it and it it makes me almost (laughs) it makes me sick even saying that on here because people hear it but yeah 
Well, um, I mean, you didn't it, mean it to do horrible, it. You, it was horrible, what happened. Com- hey, it was a complete accident. Yes, I know, but still, destroying everything your family owns is, is messed up. Traumatic. And very traumatic, especially when you can't tell anybody. And yeah. um, so the weird thing, this is another weird thing. Um, the only thing of mine that survived that I could salvage was my diaries, which I've always thought that is so crazy because it's paper. But they were in the closet along the front of the house. Like my bedroom was on the, like the window out was on the porch. So that was part of it, I think. But they were in a metal trunk. And the only two things that survived my room or my brother's room were, he had baseball cards in a metal trunk and I had my diaries. So I always, you know, that's pretty crazy. Like I still have them. I still have all of them. Yeah, it is nuts. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about, because I think something that emerged for you and for me, because, you know, you know, I've been here through the whole process with you that I think is important. Um, I don't know if you started out when you started writing your book about, you know, the deeper meaning of writing this book and, and as far as helping people or I think that someone could read the book. I think that's the, book. the most important thing here. And I want you to talk about that. Well, first of all, I don't even know, like for most of it, I had no idea why I was writing it. Right. I mean, I just felt compelled, like I felt pre-programmed to do this, even though I had everything going against me with this book because it's like... um I don't understand punctuation. We moved so much when I was a kid. I've never understood it. I fucking hate punctuation. There's a whole blog piece on my website for the book, um, talkingtothesky.com. I have never understood punctuation. So that has made, that has been just, (laughs) I mean, these editors change everything and then they give it back to me and I, and sometimes they'll add stuff, which is the thing I hate most. Then I tear it all out. So that, um, that has been crazy hard for an author who doesn't understand punctuation. And then the OCD too, it almost seemed like some kind of cruel joke because I was thinking, I mean, I'm having to stop beating myself up that this took 13 years. I mean, I'm kind of like stuck on that. But um, because I was thinking this morning, I could have any kind of degree I want. (laughs) I could have any kind of like degree I want. A master's in anything. I know, but I tell you all the time. You did. You got a degree. You have taught yourself how to write. Writing songs is completely different from writing nonfiction or fiction or any other genre. Writing prose, long form, is completely different animal than songwriting. And you have spent 13 years busting your ass. You've been to every class. You've you <laughs> you you got up under some really good writers who helped you learn. Yeah, you don't have a degree from Harvard, but I tell you, you got a degree from kick ass, and you're a great writer from it. And no matter what you do now, you've got that skill. You know what I mean? How did you become a great songwriter? You, you know, you wrote about 3,000 songs and screwed them up every way possible. That's how you become a good songwriter or a great songwriter like you. You have you just do it over and that's how anybody gets good at anything. Yeah. So, yeah. so you writing for 13 years, there is no bad way to look at that. You, you've taught yourself how to write and you do have a degree. 
yeah, I get. I mean, <laughs> you just don't know it because you you haven't gotten well, off I this know, book yet. But I could teach a class on writing because yeah. I took so many. Yeah. I mean, I took classes until I was basically teaching the class because I think that was another part of the fear, um, just kind of fear that it wasn't good enough and like it. I think my biggest fear on it was that it wasn't good enough and then that I had worked so hard on it. <laughs> I'll cry. But I had worked so hard on it and my biggest fear was nobody would care. But I understand. But they will care because it's unbelievable. Everyone who reads this, and you've had it, you've you've previewed this book for a few people in town, readers, some songwriters we know that are readers, and you know you you know the feedback you've gotten from this is it's it's incredible. There is a reason you did it, and I'm going to say this, and we don't go in, we're not have to go into all this stuff, but I do want to say it. You know, you had lots of stuff happen to you that a lot of people don't you know everybody touches on some tragedy everybody has some rough times you had some major stuff go you know go wrong in your life and how you dealt with it and how you got through it and ended up being a bmi songwriter of the year that's inspirational for people all right i've got some right here i'm going to read these this is bart okay bart herbison right who's the head of nsai yeah great guy yeah, I never knew him. He called yeah. me out of the blue when, like one night. Let me read his thing. Yeah, he did, and Bart's a huge reader. I mean, he's a yeah. book guy. I was always kind of afraid of Bart. Yeah. <laughs> I well, told he's so, him, he's like, a serious well, guy. yeah, he's he's like strong and kind of like, I just seen him on stage all the time at yeah. the awards. Well, he's got that big voice. Yeah, he's got that big voice. He, he sounds like a senator or something. Yeah. Anyway, so his quote was, OMG. Amy's book is one of the best things I've ever read. Unbelievable writing, fantastic storyteller, and completely honest. It healed me in a way. That's my favorite. I've got two favorite things people have said that have read it. It healed me in a way is my favorite because that kind of made me feel like, okay, there's a reason I did this. You know what I mean? Like the fact that it touched him in such a deep way. I mean, like he called me and he's like, I'm obsessed with this book. And and it was funny because I, I was just so, I had been praying for some kind of sign, like some kind of sign of what to do. And um, so then when Bart called me, he was just so over the moon about the book he was he said um I was like I, I was still like I am now caught up in a circle of how did I do this for 13 years because right. I've got to stop beating myself up for that but I was like I don't even know why I wrote it and he said you wrote it for humanity <laughs> <laughs> and when he said that I mean like I don't know I, it the whole thing just felt surreal I'm gonna read some more I've got another one here um this I hear this one a lot. I was laughing so hard I had to get up and leave Starbucks. <laughs> I don't know who that person is. That's an editor. But you know what? MB Roberts. There are. I remember one of the first full chapters I read is called Rick Springfield. It's called Affair of the Heart. Affair of the Heart. It's about Rick Springfield, and it's funny. 
I let him read that chapter, but I purposely you let Rick. Yeah, I let Rick Springfield read that chapter about him, but I purposely didn't read it. Like I'd been away from it for a few months, and I knew if I read it before I gave it to him that I wouldn't give it to him because there's some crazy shit in that chapter. And I, I remembered after I gave it to him, I called his wife a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, hang, I mean, on, wait, hang on, I'm hang 12, on. I'm 12. You're 12-year-old yeah, Amy. I was 12. Who was convinced you were going to oh, marry Rick. I believed I was going to marry Rick Springfield with every fiber in my body. I mean, I believed it. I can't. I, I believed it as much as I've ever believed anything. I thought I was marrying Rick Springfield, and um, there's some crazy stuff went down, like at concerts with him. And there was one like thing that happened when I was 12 when I snuck backstage. That's that's pretty wild. But so I give him that chapter, and then um, I didn't hear anything for a couple weeks. And then I got an email that said, um, wow, I'm, I feel bad about getting married. <laughs> it said, wow. And then a smiley face. And then it said, it reads like a movie. You know, if you need anything, just let me know. Wow. So that's great. Rick. Rick. <laughs> so we, we wrote with Rick Springfield several years back. Yeah, that was crazy. Amy's childhood crush. And we crush would be putting it mildly. We wrote with him on Valentine's Day. Yeah, and we had a great time. He's a super nice guy, and uh, he was very used to a certain age group of women who thought they were going to marry him. So he was very – he could deal with that very well. I was – you know, I didn't know what to think. I mean, am I going to be jealous in the room with this guy? But he clearly was a pro, and he – he, he knew he the whole... But he did not know any of that when we wrote. I think this thing just shocked... Uh, I, no, no, now he, he knew probably some. knew I was a fan. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure there were... Well, couple, yeah. There yeah. were a couple times, like, in the writing room where he... um There were a couple times, like, when he would... Like, one time he smiled or something, and I saw, like, a dimple on the side of his face, which reminded me of being a kid. I kept I kept feeling like I was turning 13 in that writing appointment. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I would just be like, holy shit, you know, that's Rick Springfield. Yeah. And he had a guitar and, like, um, playing the guitar watch, every now and then watching that. The funny thing I remember is you found his... He he left his Starbucks cup here that said Rick in yeah. a marker, yeah. and you found it in the kitchen in the cabinet mold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he turned out it's weird because like now we're friends. Yeah, it's really and he not only was I in love with him when I was twelve, I feel like he made such a big impression on me because I loved his music. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, and, and he he was great, man. I remember when he came out; it was like. He was way cut above, uh, cut above your normal like teeny bopper guy. Yeah, he was really great. Um, let's tell everybody uh, where to go. To get okay, it. okay. So we to get the book and please get the book or please share this with people you know that love to read. To get the book, you go to Kickstarter.com and it's Talking to the Sky by Amy Mayo. Right, and you might can just put it. Like, I've got a website called Talking to the Sky. It's probably got a link. And my Instagram and the profile and Facebook have a link. Yep, Amy Mayo. A-I-M-E-E. A-I-M-E-E Mayo. And, uh, or you could Google Kickstarter Amy Mayo. Yeah. You can find it. Yeah. And uh, if you feel inclined, uh, 
please go and uh, order one of these books on Kickstarter. Yeah, and please help spread the word. And too. please, please That's, help spread the word. Uh, yes. You know, one thing is, I had I, I had my expectations way too <laughs> way too high because the only thing I really knew about Kickstarter was Delta Ray the band. Yeah, they did Kickstarter to raise money for their record. And theirs was funded in 30 minutes. So I went into this thinking, you know, like, oh, this is, I'm going to fund this, you know, the first couple of days. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's been the hardest. Aside from writing the book, it's been the hardest. Yeah. And, you know, expectations will get you every time. Yes, they will. I mean, like. It's it's so good to not have expectations, but it's so hard to not have expectations. Well, we're getting there. We're getting yeah, there. Yeah, we're close, but we're I, close. I need all the help I can get. You do. And uh, so this has been Amy Mayo on a special edition of Pitch List. Thank you all for listening. We are working hard on uh, all of our new episodes for season three. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh and again, I'd like to say thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. I don't think I could ever tell you how humbling it is to me that you do that. It's awesome. It is awesome. Yeah, it really is awesome. And uh, let's get Amy cracking on this uh, Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, it ends on December 13th. Yeah, so jump in there soon. Which is also Taylor Swift's birthday, weirdly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kickstarter.com, talking to the sky. I love you, Amy Mayo. I love you, too. Bye.